Texas talking oh, What was that that you said Texas talking oh, Gonna hoop up inside your head Texas talking Tell me who can you trust When Texas goes on Hello and welcome to the Tribcast. This is David Plotz, the host of the Slate Political Gab Fest. My colleagues and I in Washington want to get away from a capital city poisoned by partisanship anger, and incompetence. So naturally, we're coming to Austin. Join us on Wednesday, April 23rd at Schultz Garden for a joint Tribcast Slate GabFest live podcast. Find out more and get tickets at slate.com slash Austin. And now here's your Tribcast host, Reeve Hamilton. Thank you. This is reporter Reeve Hamilton here with the Tribcast. And yes, we are very excited about our live show coming up on April 23rd, and we encourage you all to get tickets. I didn't know we were starting the Tribcast with advertising now. We are. We're advertising for ourselves. Which is sort of just what a house, the Tribcast it's just, is. It's just a house just, ad. Basically right. just a membership campaign. Right. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I'm excited about seeing you on the 23rd. Apparently Emily is a bit ambivalent. That's uh, uh, editor Emily Ramshaw who's joining me. Howdy. Sitting next to executive editor Ross Ramsey. Hello. Who I think is the healthiest one in the room. Well, we'll Everyone see. Else is we'll a bit see. Under okay. the weather. Todd's Producer fine. Todd, Producer Todd is, fine. is fine. But that's because he eats massive amounts of coconut oil. And baby food. That yeah, too. Baby food's good. Joining us on the sick bay is Alexa Yura, <laughs> reporter for the Texas Tribune as well. Hello. This is your first Tribcast. It is. I'm sorry about Inaugural that. Inaugural Tribcast for me. <laughs> yeah, we'll just, you know, act normal. So don't no, anger, don't. Don't anger Ross and you'll be fine. <laughs> uh, while we're recording this, there's sort of breaking news in multiple directions that we should probably address, although we don't. <laughs> From what? I'm just trying to get a visual. Go okay. ahead. Directions. <laughs> some news is, some news is breaking sort of right uh, downward north. and uh, sort of slanted, and uh, the other's going straight up. All right. Why don't you <laughs> tell us tell us which is which? <laughs> this is going smoothly. <laughs> Let's start with Lieutenant Governor's race. So in David Dewhurst's campaign, two of his top aides uh, left the campaign yesterday in sort of a somewhat dramatic shakeup that we just heard about. This morning, uh, his communications guy, Travis Considine, and his research director, Andy Hemming, both walked out and said basically that, uh, you know, they both think that there's still sort of a path forward for the campaign, but... That they don't want to be part of it. <laughs> yeah, but there's been disagreements internally about what the, what that path is. Well, which basically means we think there's a path forward, but we don't think it's the path that they're taking. <laughs> right. Um, this does not bode well for the campaign, I would imagine. It's not really ever a great thing when you are entering a sprint, you know, to be to be changing the team. Um, you know, this team got him this far, and you could argue that this far isn't far enough, which apparently is what's going on. You know, Dewhurst right. only got 28% in the first round, and he's got a runoff on May 27th against Dan Patrick, who so far has been walloping him, and he's making some changes. So... Um, it may be that these are changes that he has to make in order to pull this off if he's going to pull it off. But it always you know, looks bad when you're reorganizing as you're entering this, this sprint. And these guys have been loyal Dewhurst guys for a while, right? I mean, how long has Travis been? Well, they've, they've both been with him for like about a year. All right. And they've been in the state for about a year. This is part of the team that replaced the team that lost to Ted Cruz. Right. Right. right, which Dewhurst sort of threw under the bus afterwards. Right. He went around saying, oh, like, the campaign just didn't get me. My guys didn't get me, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it seems like, you know, if, if they're going to – if they are probably going to lose and get thrown under the bus, I could understand wanting to jump off the bus. Well, and maybe, you know, in a campaign like this, I mean, there are 
if, if you just look at this, if we sat around and all made our own little business plan for what Dewhurst needs to do, we would probably come up with three or four different business plans and disagree with each other. That's just a other. Friday evening at the Tribune office. Right, yeah, it's exactly. just, you know, it's, it's like what we do. But, um, I mean, we would come up with three or four plans and not maybe agree on how to go about this. And, you know, it's it's, you know, certainly within Dewhurst's right and probably the right thing to do to get everybody going in the same direction. And if some members of your team don't want to go that way, you say, well, you know, sayonara. Well, let's go a different way then. Uh, there's a, there's other breaking news out of the U.S. Supreme Court that I think Ross would like to address now. Yeah, this is the McCutcheon case in Ross Alabama. Ross is the only one of us wonky enough to explain this. <laughs> I was not aware there was a U.S. Supreme Court. So it's <laughs> there wasn't a court or a court decision. Yeah. Uh, McCutcheon oh. is a guy in Alabama, a big donor, who gave to the aggregate limit. So there's a limit on how much you can give to a federal candidate for Congress or the Senate or the president. There's a limit to what you can give to PACs, and then there's an aggregate limit of the total amount of money you can contribute to sort of hard money contributions over the course of an election cycle. And McCutcheon said, basically, I've given to 16 candidates. I've given each of them the maximum amount I can give them. And I would like to give more money, but I have hit the aggregate cap, and I would like to contribute to 12 more candidates. But you are restricting my right to free speech. The Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision this morning, we're taping on Wednesday, said, well, that's right. We are, you know, unconstitutionally restricting his free speech. And the aggregate limits how much an individual or a corporation can give to all candidates or all political action committees in federal races is unconstitutional. So do you expect a big change here in Texas because of this? You know, I te- guess in our congressional races. Yeah, Texas is one of the – it doesn't really affect candidates so much. You know, it, it does eventually, obviously. But, you know, the first effect of this is on big donors. Texas is the fourth, according to Open Secrets, the fourth biggest ATM for politics in the country behind D.C., New York, California. And so it's a significant source of funds for candidates, not just running for – the Texas congressional delegation, but for any federal office. Right. Um, I mean, it doesn't suddenly Herald, mean yeah, the, that you can bankroll like a Harold Simmons, that you can suddenly, you know, bankroll like you can Texas candidates where there right. there are no state limits. Candidates. Right. State yeah. candidates where there aren't any limits. It just means that you could give to, oh, say, everybody running in a congressional, every right. Republican running in a congressional race as opposed to having to so, choose your races. So directly to candidates, I can give $2,600 to each candidate. And, and the way a lot of donors do this is... Spouse one gives twenty six hundred. Spouse two gives twenty six hundred. So you're in. Is this big love? Fifty two. Right. Yeah, it's kind of you know. <laughs> um, and I guess in big love, you know, spouse three, four, five, and six could also give their twenty six hundred. But you hit a cap where you say, you know, we've given all of the money we're allowed to give in this cycle. This would free someone with the inclination and the funds to give the maximum amount to candidates in all four hundred and thirty five races for the U.S. House, for example. So really, really deep pocketed donors who have been constricted by this aggregate limit uh, will no longer be constricted. And a bunch of those guys live in Texas. Does this give more fire to the people who have you know, fought the idea that corporations are people and that they have much more power than individuals in these cases? You know, it, it combines with the Citizens United decision. Evan Smith calls it the Citizens Untied decision. Uh, it, sounds, it sounds like it gives more power to the corporations. Well, it does. I right. mean, to the extent that these are deep-pocketed donors and now they're not limited to an aggregate donor donation right. limit over the course everyone. of or the course yeah. of every two years. So now they can say, I am interested in buying um, or in, in contributing to everybody who's running for Congress or everybody right. in a majority of the races or whatever, and I have the funds to do it, so I'm going to. 
Do you think that all the states will – so if we're fourth now, will we, because there's a lot of uh, money in Texas, uh, will we jump to the front of the line or will all the states move up together? I think it depends on how many rich people in each of those states want to give the maximum amount. You know, these that's, are the shell- that's undeniably true, I think. Well, I'm, you know, I think Texas has always been one of these sources, but it's only one of them. And, it, you know, it's always in the top, but it's, you know, um, Texas, California, New York, and, you know, Sheldon Adelson and his pals in Nevada now um, – those those guys can give unlimited amounts. It it makes federal law a little bit more like state law here. You know, in Texas, you can give however much you want to give to however many candidates you want to give it to, and all you're required to do is report it. So, you know, one one person, a doctor in, I think, Lake Travis, gave a million dollars to Wendy Davis. And in, in federal elections, that would have been a felony. Right, exactly. <laughs> But in Texas elections, it's just sort of interesting. Part of the yeah, it, is, exactly. it is sort of like Emily alluded to. It sort of opens the door to be perceived as just basically being entirely in the pocket and on the payroll of an individual or a corporation. Well, you know, there's a you know one of the one of the theories behind this in, in campaign finance is you know maybe you should just let everybody give as much as they want to as many people as they want or to any person that they want, so long as it's reported and you can see where the money is. And voters can look at this and say, well, it's either appropriate or inappropriate that, you know, Reeve Hamilton gave a million dollars to a candidate, Emily Ramshaw, and they can make well, a judgment. It never happened. <laughs> and they can make a judgment is, on, well, never mind. When you, I'd, never work, you're a little I'd never work again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but we should but stick the, to idea, the idea here is that you can kind of see what's on the label. You know, you can see and that can Emily Ramshaw well. got a million bucks. I'm just going to ignore you guys. Got a million bucks from... Thank you for that voucher one, confidence, though. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to go off and get their own <laughs> podcast here. Uh, that as long as you can see where the money came from, that the voters can make their judgments about that. And that, you know, then you get into the sort of the second, a, a, a different area of the fight over campaign finance right now is over dark money and over whether, you know, the lack of transparency in a lot of these large donations combined with these new court ordered abilities to give large amounts of money. Um, does two things. It allows large interests to buy large um, interests from the people who serve in office and, in some cases, to do it anonymously. And if you combine those two things, you sort of subvert the idea of campaign finance law and you subvert what the Supreme Court has said it wants. You know, what they've written in Citizens United and to some extent in McCutcheon was that as long as it's transparent and the voters can see where the money's coming from, then you've got the cleansing effect that you are trying to get with all of these restrictions. Well, and I think, you know, the country has had a strong desire to be more like Texas for a long time. So this, is, <laughs> right. this, this will help them along. I think the number that I want to know, and I know Ross and I have been talking about this morning trying to figure out, is the number of Texas donors that in the 2012 election cycle were capped out, gave the maximum amount, but, you know, would have potentially given more had they not been capped out. Yeah, we don't have an actual list, but the the early stuff I've seen looks like somewhere in the one to two dozen. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and you have to have a lot of money, right? You know, it, it the cap right now is around forty eight thousand dollars. I think it's forty eight four uh, for all of your giving in hard money to direct candidates. That doesn't include PAC money. I think if you include PAC money, the overall cap is one hundred and thirty two thousand. A lot of these people give money like that. You know, in Texas races, just you know, like chiclets. You know, imagine for, how many <laughs> tickets to the Gabfest Tribcast live event they could be buying. Instead. We could fill Schultz Garden with yeah. that, right? Um, Let's you, hope. You know, but in, te- but in Texas races, for example, I mean, you know, Wendy Davis had the million dollar contribution. Greg Abbott has, I think, twenty six contributions in the last period of a hundred thousand dollars or more. 
so here it's a commonplace in federal elections. Uh, these are whopping big numbers. All right. So shall we move on to the planned topics now that we've gotten the breaking news out of the way? Sure. All right. This is Alexa's time to shine. Oh, man. Greg Abbott, who is a Republican running for governor. Thank uh, you for that clarity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he unveiled his the first of his education proposals. Uh-huh. It's anticipated that he will be rolling out several education proposals over the next few weeks, right? Yes. Uh, so what does this first one say? So in his first education policy proposal, Abbott focused on early education. And in it, he said basically that pre-kindergarten programs in the state had to be reformed before they were expanded to full day programs. He said he'd give, you know, 1500 more per student. Dollars more. Yes, right? dollars more. If the, stu- if the programs met up to specific gold standards that the state would set for these um pre-kindergarten programs. And basically, this flies in the face of his opponent, Wendy Davis's proposal. Democrat running for governor. Yes, who basically said, you know, let's expand access to full day pre-K in the state and let's fund that full day pre-K because the state currently only funds three hours and a half day program. But she got dinged because she did not have a price tag on her plan. And Abbott has definitely been highlighting that in the last week. Right, right. Her proposal didn't come with specific price tags. She said that she we could pay with it with existing funds and by restoring cuts that the legislator made in 2011 to the state's pre-K grant program. But and Abbott's proposal comes with I think it's an 118 million price tag um, for over 10 years, I believe, for this. No, a year. I think that was for the it's for the 2016-2017 biennium. He said right. it was 118 million. Are his people going to go for uh, spending increase that's that's that big. It depends on where the money comes from, you know. So there's there's two, you know, the sort of the the waterbed here is you know if you're going to put 118 million into public education, you know nobody's necessarily straight up against that. It depends on where it comes from. Did you raise taxes? Did you raise fees? Did you steal it from another program? And that's where the tension in this will come from. One of the problems Davis has is that the number on a full expansion, whatever that number is is bigger than this. And she didn't say anything about either the price tag or, you know, possible sources of the money. And that that's where Abbott's going to keep dinging her on programs. Right. You know, let's say that, you know, let's say that that Davis ends up being the one in the governor's mansion, she'd still be dealing with a super conservative legislature, right. you know, at a time where she'd be needing need a lot of dollars to to execute that plan. And she has cited that the budget surplus could serve a purpose here in terms of refunding these pre-K programs, but it'll come down to whether the legislature would even want to use that surplus for that. One of the big fights in the legislature this next time is going to be not whether they have the money to do all of the things that they're talking about, but whether they actually want to spend it, whether they want to break the spending caps, you know, that say the state budget can't grow faster than growth in population and inflation and things like that. And a lot of the conservatives in the legislature, you know, have basically said they're not going to vote to exceed those spending caps. So you so the only other way to get there is by cutting other programs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been interesting because the day, the uh, Abbott camp has, you know, turned around after releasing its first education tenets and said to Wendy Davis, you know, where's your price tag? You know, basically, let's talk policy. And the Davis camp's response to Abbott's education plan was, look at this uh, researcher who he cites in the footnotes of his plan who has historically said, you know, Things about women and minorities that are, this is the Charles Murray yeah. problem. So right. Charles Murray is a 
sort of writer and thinker. Not right now, he's at the American, American Enterprise, Enterprise Institute. Institute. Yeah. Um, he well, he you know he wrote pretty uh, what could be easily construed as a offensive defense of Larry Summers when Larry Summers sort of had his criticism of women saying that they sort of like were no good at science basically that's paraphrasing yeah charles murray suggested there are cognitive differences between males and females uh that have that you know that have precluded women from making strides in particular fields and he basically said that no woman has done anything as well as men ever this is sort of shorter charles murray (laughs) (laughs) which of course you know i mean it is a smart line of attack since he was cited in Abbott's thing, and that does resonate with the other issues in the campaign, right? Abbott campaigned with Ted Nugent, who has also said some maybe distasteful things well, about women. Well, yeah, the past. Davis campaign is trying to make a thing of, and you know, may, may well succeed at it, but they're they're trying to make a thing of Greg Abbott's associations. You know, you you know, um, he's hanging out with this one. He's um, you know using the the ideas of that one. Um, these are all bad people, so therefore he's a bad person. Come look at Wendy Davis. But is that a legitimate critique? Well, and who is the person in Davis's campaign whose job is to literally go through the footnotes of everything <laughs> Abbott says or does, searching for somebody who said something at one time that was possibly offensive? Every big-time campaign yeah. has somebody like that. It's there's an one extremely amazive job. Search. Right, there's yeah. one in Fort Worth right now. There's another one in Austin right now. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. You remember Jeremiah Wright and Bill Ayers, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. this right. happens in well, basically— this is, this, this is Bill Ayers, right. Right. This happens in—no, that's what I was going to say. Was, this happens in basically every major campaign. You know, uh, Bill Clinton has cited this same guy in previous speeches as being, you know, a key a key thinker. Um, I mean, I think— you Well, know, look at his treatment of women. <laughs> good point. <laughs> Touché. Um, but, I, you know, I do think it's—I think that the Abbott—or the Davis campaign has really sort of been successfully driving this narrative, and they are just unrelenting. And are this sort of shows they're going to go to to incredibly great lengths to make any kind of connections that they possibly can. And it sounds like you sort of think it's avoiding the policy issues. Y- you know, I do it's distracting. I do think for for Davis, who was targeted for her own biography and said, "Let's talk about policy." You know that now we're at a time when Abbott and Davis are in a position to be talking about education policy. Or they finally both put out plans. Yeah, they now there now right. is policy to talk about, and yet the narrative yesterday was check out this guy in the footnotes as opposed to let's talk about the merits of these but she, plans. She did have a different attack initially, right? Which was this whole thing about about uh, it's not a waste to fund education. Right. right? Wasn't so that initial she came out blaring sort of even fire. before Abbott announced his policy proposal, saying that any sort of proposal that would come from him was hypocritical because he was defending the state in a lawsuit filed by a coalition of school districts saying that the state's funding system is not adequate. And so it's unconstitutional. And she's banged him on that for a couple of weeks now, no, actually months, basically. And so that happened even before he announced. After he announced, there was a line in in his remarks and in the policy proposal, which basically says that expanding pre-K before improving its quality is wasteful and is negligent. And so the campaign went after that. They had a couple of school teachers at an event yesterday calling him out for his remarks. And the Abbott campaign has basically said, you know, we're not saying you can't expand. There's people who can do it through local municipal bonds that can do it through federal funding. And that they're not suggesting that pre-K is a waste. They just want to reform it before anything else. So I guess they are having... I mean, th- then it sounds like there is a, a more robust policy discussion Well, that was before on. Charles Murray showed up right. in the footnote. Right, that was, right. and that, that <laughs> came before. It's now been subsumed by this right. other stuff. But, you know, right. now you have a stark difference between them on a policy. You know, Abbott right. is calling for a full day. 
I mean, Davis was calling for full day. Abbott wants to keep it at half day. But we're not seeing a lot of debate on that specific mm-hmm. issue. The uh, Yeah, I, I sort of think it's interesting just because I do think that Abbott's sort of the general tenor of Abbott's plan, which is that, you know, we won't give money until we see like positive outcomes and stuff is something that you hear in higher ed a lot. Right. You know, they've really been trying to push outcomes based funding. I'm making air quotes with my fingers, but listeners can't see that. Um and that actually has not been very successful for universities in terms of actually getting that policy pushed through the legislature. But it has been successful for community colleges and technical schools. They've gotten performance-based funding. And so I think more and more, especially in Texas, while it's not going on for universities, I think down the pipeline that you're going to see that that's just going to be the way of things. It's like you're not going to get money unless you can prove that it's outcomes. paying. Out. And it might be that that is creates sort of an unfair situation. And the university situation, situation the high-performing sort of schools that attract uh, richer students and students whose parents have gone to college, you know, there's concern that an outcomes-based funding model will unfairly benefit them when they're already sort of doing okay. And what are the outcomes? Uh, you know, how do you measure success from pre-K? We're going to suddenly have little are you pre-K talking? tests. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there are ways. I'm sure that researchers have come up with ways to do this and, you know, but I do think it's that's probably an easier easier performance to gauge at the higher education level than it is at the Well, the other thing is though if is if, you know, the pre-K kids, you know, consistently perform better later on in school and if and and they're constitutionally bound in the Texas public school system to equal and adequate access to education. And if you're only doing pre-K here and not there, it's not equal and adequate. And, and, and so if you're giving the kids in one part of the state a head start or in one part of a particular district a head start, uh, which is where the program got its name, right. then – and you're not giving it to others, um, then you're, you know – under attack for not being equal and adequate, you know, you're not and giving ha- them the same. Then whoever the attorney general is will have to defend that. System. Well, and you know, that, that, the other <laughs> thing here is, you know, the, the attorney generals, you know, every once in a while they'll go against the state on these things. You know, uh, Morales did it in the Hopwood case, but the, you know, most of the time the attorney general has to defend whatever they hand him. You know, you did what? You know, they might have that conversation in private, but when they go to court, it's like I'm going to defend what they did. Right. Well, Russ, you wrote a column this morning about sort of the interesting position that Abbott is in when he's trying to make policy proposals of this sort. It's hard to be a reformer without saying there's something wrong with what you found. And the problem with that for Abbott is that the something wrong was created by or maintained by Rick Perry. You know, and so he's got an ally here. It's easy for Wendy Davis to come in and say this is all screwed up. Clean and this it's house. Been screwed up. Yeah, yeah it's been is, screwed up for 14 years. This is a total mess. I'm going to change everything. That's one thing, and everybody expects her to draw a distinction between herself and Rick Perry and the Republicans. Greg Abbott's trying to say, I'm going to do this moonshot idea. You know, we're going to have the best school system, the best public schools. Above, he might have said higher ed, but we're going to have the best education system in America in 10 years. So jump 40 or so slots on the list. Right. And, and yeah, it's a, quite a climb. Uh, but the, he has to say in doing that, you know, that we, we don't have the best one now without offending Rick Perry, who's, you know, sniffing around in a presidential race. And I'm sure every, you know, those little researchers that we were talking about a minute ago were looking at footnotes in the Rand Paul campaign and the Ted Cruz campaign and the Jeb Bush and the Rubio and, you know, on and on and on are looking at that and going, hey, here's a Republican over here in Texas saying Rick Perry didn't do such a great job on education. So, you, you know, you, you have to um, 
you just gotta gotta be careful here if you're Greg Abbott. Yeah, it's a much harder line for him than it is for uh, Wendy Davis. Right. Uh, but I guess since we mentioned the Dewhurst campaign earlier, I guess Dan Patrick doesn't have that problem because he's running he's running against an incumbent. He doesn't right. have the, the incumbent is not an ally in his case. Right. It's not an ally. And he can say, you know, I don't think David Dewhurst has been doing this right. You know, we've got a Republican majority. We've got a Republican governor. I like all of that. But, you know, Dewhurst hasn't been doing it right. And so I want to change it. You know, if you're if you're campaigning on change, you have to, you know, and you're sympathetic to whoever's regime you're changing, you've got a problem. That's right. Abbott's problem. Although it's not like Dan Patrick hasn't been in the Senate and hasn't taken a lot of those votes right. and everything else. I mean, you know, it's different than if he were a total outsider coming in and saying, you know, like so many people have done with Washington, saying basically this place is a total cesspool, you right. know, it needs new blood. We, we saw a blush of this in the first round of the attorney general's race. Barry Smitherman popped up and said something critical about the child support division of the attorney general's office. He basically and, said they were paper pushers. And Abbott, the incumbent, swatted him down. And, you know, Abbott's got to, you know, be mindful of that, that he doesn't go out into a place where Perry has to or feels he has to swat him down. Right. But at this point, you know, could Perry swat him down? Like, does he still have enough clout to do that? Or is people sort of I think he's if, already sort of sure, fading out of the governor's governor? office now? I think if Perry took a swing and fed it into the Wendy Davis amplification system. I think we'd be hearing about it and hearing about it and hearing about it. Well, and also Abbott has Abby, Abbott and Perry have embraced each other on the campaign trail now. Right. Even though Abbott's trying to stay away from him a little bit and try to distinguish himself as his own candidate, they've now done fundraisers together, and the right. governor has come out in support of Abbott. So I don't know that we'd see him publicly come out against him. Plus, but even if he swatted yeah. them down, like who? I mean, what? in the attorney general's race. You had other candidates that could rise up and did rise up, right? Uh, in this case, it's sort of like, you know, Abbott voters are suddenly like, well, Rick Perry doesn't like him. I'm going to go vote for Wendy Davis. Let's recall that <laughs> Abbott's campaign is currently stocked now with former Perry people right. who have been writing carefully the media communications or the policy plans for Perry for eons now. You can be sure those guys are being pretty darn careful with what they're writing and know how to separate the left from the right. They're, they're going to be some yeah. version of we're going to make the Texas miracle even more miraculous. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> exactly. You liked Texas Miracle 1. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's move on to Saturn News. Than the miraculization of the Texas miracle, I guess. Ross didn't like that at all. (laughs) We're having some rough transitions. We were all sick, except for Ross. All the wrinkles in my forehead are getting a workout. Go ahead. Uh, Try to save yourself. Well, so Ray Hutchison died this week, uh, which is sort of a Texan with a pretty incredible legacy left behind. Yeah, he was a wizard, wizard bond lawyer and and was really good at figuring out, you know, how to thread the needle when when local and state governments were trying to raise money and also trying to mind the price sensitivity of their taxpayers. You know, was involved in the DFW airport, which, you know, was contentious the whole way. The um, the Dallas area rapid transit, um, the ballpark, the ballpark at Arlington Cowboy Stadium. The stadium that Jerry Jones built to replace Cowboy Stadium, you know, just all of these deals all over North Texas and, and to some extent around the state, you know, there's Ray, Ray Hutchison's hand is in these things. Um, Most and, and people Alexa's age probably know him best <laughs> as the husband of Senator K. Bailey Hutchison. Right, this and you know true. his his and he, the father of same. a couple of they have a couple <laughs> of young kids right. too. Yeah. He was it's yeah. it's one of you know the the great trivia question here is it's one of two couples in Texas history where both the husband and wife 
were candidates for governor. Um, Ma and Pa Ferguson were the other one. Uh, Ray ran against, uh, he was a House member. In fact, the two of them met while serving in the House in the mid-70s. And he ran against Bill Clements in 1978. Clements beat him in the primary and went on to break the Democratic stranglehold on the governor's office in in 78. and after that, Ray didn't run anymore. Kay ran for Congress once and then ran for treasurer and then became a U.S. senator. And he was, you know, kind of the political consigliere behind her. Um, I, I, I got a lot of political lessons, you know, when we'd go out in the hall and smoke with Ray. You know, he would he would be mad at you and say, hey, come here um, and, and, and tell you something. But he was one of those people that was, uh, you know, a real political player, helped the party, you know, kind of rise from – you know, a handful of, of Republican representatives in the House into the party that it is today. And I was struck by, uh, after the news broke of his death, the sort of bipartisan nature of, like, the outpouring of sort of support. I know, um, uh, you know, just, well, politicians on Like Ron sides. Kirk, when mm-hmm. the former mayor of Dallas, was, you know, there saying, you know, he did great things here. And, you know, all the Republicans, he was a Republican Party chairman for a while. Eric Johnson, right. Democratic state representative, was saying right. really nice things about him on Facebook. He got a lot of stuff done. Uh, could you get a politician like that today? Or was he part of sort of a different, more cooperative, statesman-like time? I, th- I think we still have some. I mean, you know, you never really know until um, they're kind of at the end of the career what you know, what they're going to do. We have a lot of people that are capable of stuff like that. We have, you know, there are always people in politics um, who want to get things done more than they want to get partisan things done. Sometimes they have to wait for the partisans to finish their act and, and, and get out of the way. You know, when when there are a lot of people sort of, you know, uh, one of our reporters described San Antonio politics as Republicans and Democrats and Fiesta. You know, and when, and when in some place like San Antonio they want to get together for some civic purpose that's larger than either party, you know, you see him sort of drop the partisan stuff. And that's when the Ray Hutchison types step forward. All right. Well, we're going to step out, I think. I think we're done. Uh, If you would like to see us in person, along with uh, some more notable people from Slate, including David Plotz, John Dickerson, Emily Bazelon, you can join us on April 23rd. You can get tickets to that at slate.com slash Austin. Uh, we would like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music, which is great every week. And we would like to encourage you to go to Tribcast at TexasTribune.org if you want to send us any questions or comments. On behalf of Emily, Ross, Alexa, and our producer Todd, this is Reeve. Thanks for listening. Are you going to eat baby food while we do this? We're in the baby room now. (laughs) What is that? That is so disgusting looking.